Good evening, everyone. You're all very welcome to the Forum for Philosophy. My name is Beth Hannon, and I'm the director of the Forum. We're a non-profit organization. We put on events like this once a week throughout the academic year. They're always free. They're always open to all. Um, and we do this because we get extremely generous donations from people such as yourselves. Um, we couldn't keep going if it wasn't for your generosity. Um, uh, so I encourage you to continue doing so if you're already one of our donors and to start doing so if you're not. Uh, you can find a link to our Just Giving page on our website. Um, a couple of housekeeping matters. This is being recorded for a podcast, so if you do ask a question, your voice will be recorded and put out into the uh, interwebs forevermore. Um, and uh, if you could turn off the volume on your phone, that would be much appreciated. You don't need to turn off your phone completely. Uh, if you want to tweet along, you're more than welcome to. We have a hashtag, LSE Forum, if you want to join in the conversation there. Uh, I think that's everything for me. Uh, tonight. I'm going to hand you over to our uh, panel, but yeah, thanks again for coming out and nice to see so many people here tonight. Thanks. Thank you, Beth. Welcome. My name is Danielle Sands and I'm a fellow at the Forum. I'm going to be chairing this evening's event um, where we'll be talking about the relationship between psychiatry and philosophy. This event has been organised in association with the Society for European Philosophy and is part of a, a a stream of, of new events that we'll be organising with the Society for European Philosophy. So let me introduce our speakers. Professor Stella Sanford is Professor of Modern European Philosophy at Kingston University. Lisa Conlon is a consultant psychiatrist at the South London and Maudsley NHS Foundation Trust. Alistair Stewart is a consultant psychiatrist at Fairfield General Hospital in Bury. And Jean Calfa is Senior Lecturer in French at Trinity College, Cambridge. So Stella, perhaps you could start things off by telling us a little bit about the history of this relationship. Yes, thanks, Danielle. Well, that's, um, obviously the history is very long, so let's yes. choose, one little, I'll choose one little thing to say about the history, which is when we think about these words philosophy and psychology and psychiatry, these are obviously Greek words that are transliterated into English. And uh, psychiatry and uh, psychology have the Greek word psyche in them, and the psychiatrist is the doctor of the soul. Um, and, and these things, this relationship between philosophy and psychiatry that we can see even in these words... Um, and, and particularly the relationship between philosophy and psychology is inextricable in the, at the origins of Western philosophy or the origins of the, the beginnings of philosophy in the West, which may not be the origins of Western philosophy, but the beginnings of, uh, of Greek philosophy, for example. So psychology, for a very, very long time, was part of, was part of philosophy. For a very, very long time, Psychology was that part of philosophy which dealt with, which was the study of the soul. For a very long time, it was the job of the philosopher to study the soul. Uh, there, were, there was no separate psychologist. And so we find even at the end of, uh, let's say, at the end of the 18th century, in Kant's philosophy, he's still talking about rational psychology in a particular philosophical sense. It's not a, a separate discipline. Um, but gradually, these things have become separated. They've, they, we now think of them as being very different disciplines. And although the academic disciplines as we know them now date probably from the middle of the 
uh, 19th century. Um, the split between philosophy and psychology and philosophy and psychiatry seems to have been almost absolute in some senses. But I say this because it's interesting if we look back a little bit in the history of philosophy, if we look back, for example, at Immanuel Kant... In 1763, he wrote an essay called An Essay on the Maladies of the Head. And he seemed to think that it was his job as a philosopher to speak about mental illness, which from the standpoint of today seems very odd. We don't think that philosophers really have the right to speak about mental illness unless they have another kind of experience as well. But Kant thought that... It, not only did he have the right, he, he sort of had the duty because it was only the philosopher who had knowledge of the soul who could say anything reasonable about mental illness. It wasn't because he had any particular experience with mental illness that he had an expertise. It was precisely because he was a philosopher that he had the expertise. And in fact, he said, uh, we can only understand mental illness if we think about the particular faculties of the soul or the mind that were affected. And one of the things I think we might talk about is these are, we think of these as being very different concepts today, soul and mind, but they weren't necessarily for Kant with his, with his, word, his German word gamut. Um, he thought that, that you needed to be able to say what the different faculties or powers of the soul or mind were, and then you would be able to classify different kinds of mental illness by identifying which of the faculties or powers was affected. Interestingly, however, he thought, he was very clear that it was for doctors to cure mental illness. It was not the part of uh, philosophers to cure mental illness. So he, he, he may have been a... He, 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 there may be no distinction between philosophy and psychology in Kant, but there was already a distinction, actually, between philosophy and psychology and psychiatry. Um, let's contrast that with something from a very recent uh, book by Edward Shorter, which is a, a historical dictionary of psychiatry. And he says... He talks about how different uh, psychiatry was dominant in different parts of the world at different times and how and he, and he poses the question why was why did the americans dominate psychiatry in the post-war period and he says well because they because the american government funded research that's probably one of the major reasons and because the pharmaceutical industry in america funded research but he says it's interesting to speculate that the americans and british were able to hack so much hard, useful science from the coalface because they have traditionally been tone deaf to the kind of philosophical speculation that has infused European psychiatry since Immanuel Kant and Georg Hegel. So his position is that the origins of psychiatry might lay in philosophy, the origins of psychology might lay in philosophy, that's not controversial, but progress in psychology or progress in psychiatry is now dependent on its liberation from philosophy. So the, the history is one of intricate, almost identity to this terrible split, although obviously, as our panellists can tell us, not, not all psychiatrists think like that. That, that might be a good moment for you to, to jump in, Lisa or Alistair. I mean, is, is the liberation of psychiatry from philosophy something we should be looking towards? Is it a good thing? Well, um, uh, Ludwig Wittgenstein, who was briefly a Manchester lad in his early days, um, he said, uh, what's the use of philosophy? Philosophy is only useful against other philosophers and against the philosopher in us. And I think the idea that um, 
you can do away with philosophy, as um, Edward Shorter seems to be suggesting, is, I think, ridiculous. Because all that happens is, rather than having your ideas clarified to some extent, you just have very muddled ideas. But philosophy, you, you can't escape it. That would be my, my view of it. And I think there are... I mean, psychiatry is a very complicated area, and I think philosophy touches on it in a number of different ways. But um, thinking about the... <clears throat> to the extent that psychiatry rests on psychology, psychology is, another, is a field which is bedeviled by all kinds of conceptual confusions. Um, and going back to the, the, the Greeks, my understanding of this is that Aristotle... The word psyche, as he used it, was about, it wasn't about a disembodied soul that had some separate existence from the person. It was whatever it was that animates the person. It was, and psyche was sometimes used meaning to mean breath or wind. And it was, it, so it was what, what made the, the living person alive which is quite different from how sometimes the mind has been talked about later on and the soul has been something separate from the body. Um, and that's just an example, I think, you know, and you can multiply those examples of how easy it is to become confused about psychology. Yeah, I was just going to add, um, I'm very sympathetic to that, that, that quote about the, the separation of the sort of Anglophone um, philosophy versus sort of the continental tradition and the effect that that had, and this idea that psychiatry has to liberate itself from philosophy—that's sort of a aligning itself with a kind of very empirical sort of scientism kind of idea of what psychiatry could be. But as we now know, that sort of led us down a bit of a cul-de-sac, and, and that was a fantasy in a way because. It was sort of an equating of the mind and the brain completely without really sort of, you know, using these sorts of tools to tease out, well, all these conceptual problems about what is a mind, what is a brain, how does it operate in the world, what's, what's the meaning of these symptoms, what's going on? Um, and I think that that's why we feel like we have come to a kind of... Um, the sort of the, that, that model has met many failures, mm. both clinically and theoretically. Mm. Yeah, I'd like to qualify a bit the historical-geographical distinction in this case because you could say that Descartes, in fact, was the first who really wanted to separate philosophy from psychiatry. The first of his metaphysical meditations is very famous because in it he disqualifies the mad from thinking and the object of philosophy from this very moment, the first of his... Uh, uh, meditations uh, has nothing to do with the analysis of, uh, of pathologies of the mind. Uh, Foucault has built the whole of the history of madness on, the, on identifying this particular exclusion uh, in Descartes. And conversely, uh, a lot of the early works on uh, uh, psychiatric drugs were done in Paris immediately after the war. Uh, and Fanon, I mean, we'll speak about Fanon, but he was also an experimenter on the, of, uh, of such drugs. So this is a very naive uh, historical and geographical distinction, I think, apart from all the conceptual uh, questions we may raise. What the distinction between 
philosophy. But this idea that it's uh, psychiatry as a science would have uh, developed from the separation between continental philosophy and empirical psychiatry yeah. is just fuzzy. Mm. It's not really the case. But would you think they develop differently, though, in the, in the, in the, in the different areas? Um, so I guess I'm sort of thinking about um, sort of 19th and early 20th century Germany and sort of, you know, and Austrian, how much we owe to the, psychi- the psychiatrists there and sort of Bloiler, Kraepelin, Jaspers, um, and how those ideas perhaps got... There was something about their richness that got lost when they got, as was suggested, exported out to America and perhaps became part of these sort of big research trials. Not that it's a complete dichotomy, of course, I'm sure. <laughs> Similar things have happened. I agree on that, but... but 19th century France was uh, arch-positivist mm-hmm. in terms yeah. of psychiatry. And in fact, 20th century French psychiatry, or at least uh, from the 30s onwards, is a reappropriation of German concepts against mm-hmm. this uh, positivist empiricist yeah. definition of psychiatry as a medical science, yeah. fundamentally. Interesting. So it's a much more complex yeah. picture, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I would say in, in I mean obviously things change, but I mean my in my training um uh Carl Jaspers was a figure whose whose writings not necessarily everybody read them in great detail, but nevertheless as they'd been transmitted through other um uh, other psychiatrists were very important in terms of the programme that he set out first of all to establish a, um, a way of understanding um, in detail the subjective experience of people who were experiencing states of mental disturbance um, and uh, using that detailed analysis then as a basis for not you know not as an end in itself but that was a, that was then to the start of potentially research programs which could could go off in a number of different directions and so to, and he was a philosopher when he became he started as a psychiatrist became a, became a professional philosopher um, so in that sense th- there is a thread that is there and it, it, I, I, I suspect it probably has sometimes become very thin in psychiatric training and I don't know what you think Lisa but um, you know but it is still there mm-hmm. and the question is what we do about it the, the curi- I looked this up earlier on and the curriculum for the membership of the Royal College of Psychiatrists there are 179 lines <coughs> of different things and one of them is ethics and philosophy mm-hmm. so there's some way to go I suspect in, in you know injecting more philosophical understanding and exploration into psychiatry. So where do we see, where do we still see the influence of, of people like Jaspers in contemporary psychiatry? Is he, he was already, he was already a philosopher even when he was a psychiatrist, mm-hmm. wasn't he? Mm-hmm. Didn't, do, we, do we see a, uh, where do we see that today? Um, well, I mean, I've, so I've, I was sort of thinking when I was sort of, thinking about what I would say and I was sort of thinking about how I got interested in phenomenology like as a sort of clinical psychiatrist because I'm not, I'm not a philosopher and I don't come from a philosophy background um, but one of the things I have done 
is set up a phenomenology reading group at the hospital where we, um, we are sort of looking back into the work of Jaspers and we are sort of interested in some work of the sort of contemporary phenomenologist. And I don't think this is a unique phenomenon. I, I think that, you know, this is something that people are becoming much more interested in. And I think one of the, the difficulties that was, being, that was being attempted to be resolved there was how you think about subjective human experience. Because psychiatry is, invo- you know, is interested and involved in sort of abnormal human subjectivity. And if you want to build objective criteria, which has you know, been a big part of the research program, um, how do you incorporate the subjective into the objective? And this was one of the things that Carl Jaspers um, really um, sort of gave a lot of thought to and really sort of struggled to think about. And as Alistair said, you know, he, he set out this sort of research program for psychopathology and set out the sorts of philosophical problems that psychiatry was going to you know, come up against. And I think there's some really, you know, interesting contemporary work being done. Um, I think a couple of interesting examples. So some of the work is, is the work by Louis Sass and Joseph Parnas about schizophrenia. You know, our, our idea of schizophrenia has been that it's, it's a disorder of... So it's characterised by hallucinations, delusions, problems with thinking issues with cognition, problems with motivation, and that you've got these sort of what we call the positive symptoms, which are sort of florid hallucinations, delusions, negative symptoms, which were originally conceived of as the essence of schizophrenia, a sort of withdrawal from the world, and problems with thinking. And, you know, phenomenology is interested in sort of the structure of subjective experience and applied to psychopathology or psychiatry it's, it's interested in sort of getting inside the, you know, what is it about that subjective experience that makes it unique to this illness or, or this symptom and one of the things about schizophrenia is this sense of self-disturbance so you know, this, this idea that so a hand is moving but I'm not moving that hand I, I don't recognise that hand as somebody else must be moving that hand and, and all sorts of other forms of self-disturbance but you know, the idea that this is, it's not, it's not just an aspect of schizophrenia, this might be actually really sort of fundamental to the construct that these other criteria, you know, haven't been able to get into. Um, I think another really interesting example is the work of Matthew Ratcliffe, um, who is a philosopher. Um, it's not a, I don't think he's works in any way within mental illness, but he's been really interested in applying sort of phenomenological approaches, so, you know, thinking about the fundamental experience of depression and what it is that might be kind of getting at the essence. And I think that people working in psychiatry would feel, I think, easily, and, you know, I'm I'm sure many of you have come into contact with this, perhaps a bit frustrated at the kind of criteria there are for depression that something sort of gets missed. You know, these, these things that are measurable in some sort of way, not being able to sleep or not having enough energy or, you know, some sort of behaviour like feeling suicidal or self-harming that doesn't capture the essence of what it feels to be depressed. And there's also this problem of, particularly for the psychiatrist or maybe the GP, that lots of people come in saying they're depressed, but they're all sort of saying different sorts of things. 
So, so what is it about this depression that psychiatry would be, you know, really interested in that, 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 that really gets at the essence of what it is to be depressed? And so, you know, he interviewed lots of people's subjective experience and he sort of looked into it and he applied sort of phenomenological research. And one of the things he found was a really common theme was depressed people's experience of possibility. So things in the world, people, the future opportunities afforded no possibility for them. That, that the idea that you could take up that opportunity, that there could be a future where things could be better, or there could be an invitation to do something that you could take up, or that you could even imagine certain possibilities were, were closed down in that state in a way that was very difficult for them to describe. And, and I, I don't think it's a huge step to think that that could be really very interesting in sort of thinking about teasing out different types of depression or, or thinking about, you know, really thinking about what does the concept of depression really, really, really map onto. Um, I think I've probably said that. And this, this is itself is a, is a philosophical concept. Yeah. Uh, the way Merleau-Ponty defined uh, consciousness was precisely the capacity to project oneself. Mm. to the future and even his, his idea of a, a corporal schema of the integration of all the uh, possibilities of movements at any moment that a human body could engage in mm. uh, this he saw as the very nature of consciousness mm. and of course by contrast when these are uh, impeded then that's where uh, there is illness or mm. disorder mental disorder mm. so there's a very close connection between uh, this idea of project, which is a philosophical definition of consciousness, and the idea of mental illness, at least in the case of depression. Yes, yeah. I think sometimes when we think to ourselves, oh, I wonder what philosophy could have to offer psychiatry or psychology, we think that we might be asking the question, which particular theory in philosophy or which particular theory, which particular position or which particular concept can, uh, you know, can be useful, can be sort of taken into into psychiatry or psychology and metabolised and mm -hmm. and made its own, and that that might be that might be the wrong way of looking at it because if we think about, uh, you know, what how did what did Jaspers conceive philosophy to be? Well, I think part, partly it was important to him that not just that, that psychiatrists should have a philosophical education, but an education in the humanities. Mm. So let's not just take philosophy and think that's mm -hmm. the solution to all our problems. Um, but when you think of philosophy as being, uh, as he did, something like um, a reflection on your own being, a reflection on your own existence, mm -hmm. uh, the psychiatrist who thinks, maybe I'll read some philosophy, is not necessarily looking for a theory mm -hmm. that, that, to help them, but as part of a general, as part of a general education, it's a... Mm -hmm. Perhaps a, an education in questioning, an education in, I'd like to say humility, but actually philosophers don't actually tend to be no, very I humble. Think, but, I think humility, yes. humility is certainly something which psychiatrists should cultivate, I mean, definitely, because the task is, is, is a very big one. And the history of psychiatry is um, full of hubris, and full of bullshit, and I think that's where, where, in a, in a, I mean, I, I kind of <coughs> philosophy is good for everybody in in the sense of I, I like to think of it as, you know, as an analogy with slow cooking, always much tastier, and, so, and slow think <laughs> slow thinking, 
actually leads to much more clarity. And particularly in the, in the world as it is today, where everything has to be done in microseconds, that taking your time to think about... I, I actually read a paper, I, I, I couldn't believe it had been published, where a, a philosopher and a psychologist got a bunch of philosophers together, professional philosophers, and a bunch of lay people, and then threw some moral dilemmas at them <coughs> and looked at what decisions they made, giving them a minute for each dilemma. And it turned out the philosophers were no better than anybody else. But obviously, because presumably you think they'd take more than a minute to think these things through. But, um, so I think in that, in that sense, philosophy is, is good. And I think, it, I think it's very important for... Um, for psychiatry to, to, to try and be very questioning about about um, um, all sorts of things, you know, about about you know the very basics of how they approach people they're treating as patients, about the the use that they make of psychological terms, and and taking them with a pinch of salt because they're often you know very very poorly defined and people two different people might use the same term to mean quite different things. I mean, that's quite a common experience, I think. So So in a psychiatric training today, would the question, what do we mean by mind, be considered an appropriate question, or would that be thought of as being a question, you know, for philosophers? Just as some mathematicians would say, I'm not interested in what number is, you know, that's a philosophical question. Mm -hmm. Is there... If I get the opportunity, I always throw that one out because you know it's a it, you know you can spend quite a long time, can't you? As a conundrum. Yeah, it's it's one it's one of those things where it's almost impossible to do the job without thinking about these things. I think that I, I think that psychiatrists come across sort of philosophical problems in their work all the time which you know addresses itself to one of the the questions about you know what what use does philosophy have to psychiatry um but in terms of whether that question would be formally asked i I don't think so i mean i was thinking about what you said about there being sort of 196 lines of which Mm -hmm. ethics and and philosophy is, is one of them and i I know that the big programme at the moment for the Royal College of Psychiatry is, is extending the, neuro, the, neuro, the teaching of the neurosciences and, and aligning us much more with the neurosciences you know, rather than you know, thinking about these conceptual issues that are, are very much at the heart of, of psychi- psychiatry because we really don't understand the mind very well and how it interacts with the brain. And it's an interesting phenomenon that if... When a, when a, obviously I can't think of an example of this, but when, a, when the pathology of a disease is outlined in sort of brain terms or neurological terms, well, it becomes a neurological disorder. It is no longer a, psych, a psychiatric disorder. You know, we, we are interested in diseases of the mind, but yet we never really... We don't even know how, in a way... Not, not, not to put psychiatrists down particularly, it's such a complicated issue, but we don't really know how to interrogate the question mm. of, of, of what is a mind in, in a way that feels in line with our very sort of scientific training because, you know, that's, that, that's one of the ways that medicine is trained. I wonder whether there's also another important relationship which is not uh, between philosophy and psychiatry in this case. Um, which would be epistemological, on what ground can you consider that the concept of disease even is mm. appropriate mm. for 
for mental illness, uh, that the idea that you can have a syndrome, which is made up of a number of symptoms, which clearly has operated uh, throughout the history of uh, uh, physical medicine, can that be uh, exported to psychiatry when you think that the question of subjectivity is so important and that consciousness may modify the interpretations mm -hmm. of the symptoms uh, and in itself produce new forms of uh, disorder? It seems like it's a very crude concept to transport it to another domain. So an epistemological question like that, a simple one, without even asking the question of the nature of mind, but asking the question of the nature of illness. Um, is, is certainly a good philosophical uh, hygiene. You've used two terms, disease and illness, there, yeah, which yeah. are quite different disorder, in terms also. of their, their implications. Mm -hmm. Disorder, again, yes. Um, but it sounds but, like philosophy just makes things more difficult. Gladly. <laughs> Surely then, maybe that's a good reason to sideline it. If it just makes things harder. <laughs> If, if I go to, I mean, if I focus a bit on what I worked on, which was the, the psychiatric writings of Fanon, it's uh, for a long time because Fanon is such a well-known political and anti-colonial uh, writer, people didn't think that he had a specific psychiatric thought, and they thought he's a psychiatrist on the side. But in fact, his PhD is a reflection precisely on that, on the distinction between uh, neurology and psychiatry, and it starts with an epistemological remark, which is that it's not obvious that certain uh, syndromes uh, are solidified into an illness. And he decided to prove that empirically by studying a, a, a neurological uh, illness uh, called uh, Friedreich's disease, which is a neurological degenerescence, uh, of which the characteristic is that patients which have all the variants of this disease or illness or disorder mm neurologically, uh, following some sort of uh, physical uh, trauma, uh, may develop some completely different psychiatric illnesses. So, and so there's a chunk of Fanon's first writing, which is on what he calls the neuropsychiatric gap. And he thinks that there is effectively a neurological disease, but that it's only the beginning or the occasion where psychiatric troubles or disorders can develop, but can they even be characterized as, uh, as diseases? He questions that. And, uh, and then he goes on to study the social dimension uh, of the development of the psychiatric uh, illnesses, uh, which may have their beginning in the neurological disorder, but then take completely different forms according to the environment. And then later on when he'll work on the on uh, psychiatry in a colonial context, then he will bring in the cultural dimension, which had gone unnoticed because most psychiatrists had worked in homogeneous uh, cultural institutions. Yeah. So, um, so this gap is not easily reduced, I think. I think the, 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 the idea that organic disorders like Friedrich's ataxia and a number of other sort of clear sort of brain diseases produce lots of different kinds of mental disturbance. That's a fairly core principle of organic psychiatry nowadays, that, that you, you can't link, for the most part, a particular type of brain disease to particular uh, specific 
psychological disturbances. They can be very sort of multi multifarious. What is clear is that many most conditions which affect the brain are liable to produce some form of, of psychological disturbance. It's not particularly surprising, is mm. it? But the um, that lack of specificity is not is not uh, it, that's sort of standard conventional <coughs> thinking nowadays, anyway. And it, what you were saying made me think of the work of um, Ian Hacking, you know, a philosopher who's you know thought a lot about sort of psychiatric illness and you know this idea of the the looping effect because of course you know we, we we are conscious we are in a society with other people and that there's almost like a co-creation that that, that goes on between the individual and the society in, in in their symptomatology but also how they experience it so a, a symptom is produced and a doctor or a group of professionals will say oh well you have this illness and then they will, that becomes a label for them, and, and they will start experiencing themselves in that sort of way. Um, you know, Ian Hacking sort of famously said that every generation has very fixed rules on how to be mad, and he was very interested in these diseases that, that, that rise up in a specific, um, a specific period of history or time, and are seen you know, by the society at the time as just probably having an organic basis, this is just something that the brain does, but then they just sort of completely disappear out of, out of the history. He, he did a book on um, fugue states in, I think, sort of 18th century Bordeaux, but another one on multiple personality disorder in North America in sort of the late 80s, and how this was just something that flared up and was a way to be in the world, but yet sort of disappeared. And just that question, how you can compare that, you know, export this idea of a sort of organic syndrome into the mind is, is, is very interesting. Mm. What about mental disturbances where well, I was going to say mental disturbances where there is no or obvious organic or neurological mm-hmm. cause or, or has it got to the point when that psychiatrist some psychiatrists would be thinking it's not that there is no neurological cause we just don't know what it is yet is there still that space for thinking about uh, mental disturbance qua mental disturbance you know mental disturbance without any underlying uh, organic cause doesn't that go back to some extent I think it goes back to this whole issue about um, um Idealism versus materialism. If there is a night, if there is a a world of the mind, which is entirely disconnected from um, you know, the world of the body, then that might be a reasonable supposition. I mean, I, I and that's why I, I would tend to sort of go with Aristotle's view that the the mind and the and the and the body. I think his his image he used was it was like the wax and the seal, wasn't it? One is that's the relationship. They're sort of in, inseparable in, in that sense. I think rather than think are things entirely psychogenic or entirely you know somatogenic, physically caused. That most problems, most forms of mental disorder, to use that term are multifactorial. There are contributions from um, culture, from, from um, social pressures, from family pressures, individual, um, 
effects of trauma and, and, and things that happen during people's early, early development, physical illness, possibly genetics in some cases. And in, 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 I think in many, many cases, there's a bit of yeah, different, different proportions in different cases, but all of those things can be involved. That's my view. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say there is this, perhaps, people can hold this almost cut-off view of, of theory versus practice. I, I think that people would think, well, if theoretically I could imagine that in some sort of future time we'll be able to map it onto something. But in clinical practice, I think that people... I mean, I have many patients who... Everybody who I've sent them to, every sort of specialist that I've sent them to has thought that it is a psychogenic cause, even though their experience is a sort of very bodily physical one. And it, it makes me think about sort of... Um, Freud and also sort of Charcot with his sort of you know his, his hysterical women at the Salpetriere and and he sort of firmly believed in a, in a in a theoretical underpinning but you know he sort of famously said oh but you know come on it's all about sex mm-hmm. um, <laughs> that, that you know that there is this sort of psychological conflict behind it that, 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 that that's causing this yeah but Freud he also in the beginning he seemed to think that in the end we would find the chemical bases of everything he, he seemed yeah. very committed to that in the beginning he did and I and I and, and I think he you know he was pretty committed to that idea but I I think I hope I'm not wrong in saying this is that he certainly envisaged though that the, the, the current way that we conceptualize the mind would have to change quite a bit to mm. explain that. He was also very dedicated to the psychological as being kind of the limit of what we were able to explain. Mm. But did think that it ultimately somehow mapped on to something, um, but that that wouldn't give the appropriate explanation with what we have right now. And I think that I would endorse that view as well. Mm. It, may, it may also be that there's a, there was in his mind a radical difference between uh, uh, explanation and clinic may very well be that there was a, a, an organic basis or chemical basis to, to any disturbance, but that didn't mean that the clinic had to be or could even be uh, chemical because of the historical development of the mental illness in the history of the individual, and you needed to unravel that and to go back through that. So this distinction between the, the, the causality and the, and the treatment the model of the causality and the model of the treatment is quite important in the history of psychiatry. Mm. But I think for Freud, those things were very close. The, the, the sort of the, the, the three, theoretical and the, the sort of the, 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 clinic, the clinical cure. Or yeah. Mm. I was I came across a passage in um, in Freud's book um, which is called Jokes and Their Relation to the mm. Unconscious, which was published in 1905, and he refers back to the beginnings of his metapsychology in the interpretation of dreams. And he says, when I first started trying to uh, think about the facts of... uh, He says something like, when I first started to try to think about the facts of psychopathology philosophically, Mm -hmm. as if if that was his Mm -hmm. his characterization of what he'd done in in the last chapter of the interpretation of dreams, as if he... He suddenly cast himself as being a philosopher. Mm. It was interesting, given he, he didn't have much more to say about philosophy. When we, one of the questions we were thinking about as we were preparing is, what, what, does, what does philosophical psychology have to offer psychiatry today? Um, maybe that's not a question about philosophy as an academic discipline. Maybe that's a question about 
psychoanalysis. Maybe that mm-hmm. question means, what does psychoanalysis have to offer psychiatry today? Because in histories like Edward Shorter's history, psychoanalysis is a kind of, you know, a, 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 a hist- a, an episode in the history of psychiatry that has thankfully passed. I think psychoanalysis has means different things, doesn't it? It means yeah. a clinical practice, and in its pure form, uh, which is you know expensive and very rarely available on the NHS, it's five times a week. Um, and when the way Freud practiced it, it's not just five times a week, but what you do in the rest of the week, mm-hmm. you lead a fairly sort of uh, Spartan life, and without. Um, distractions and things like that but it's also a development a theory about development yeah. isn't it? and about about um, forces and I think in some ways you could say it's almost become so absorbed we don't realise how some of the time how much we're just using those concepts all the time I mean you can cognitive behaviour therapy is, is a is a you know, a popular form of therapy now, which explicitly rules out the unconscious, mm. and that's you know it, it can work without. But that doesn't mean that there is no such thing as unconscious motivation or unconscious forces. They're still there, and some some cognitive behaviour therapists have got into a lot of uh, difficulties because of you know things that go on in their relationship with their patients, which they weren't expecting. So I think they, you know, in that sense, I would say the, the sort of psychodynamic theory of um, the unconscious and that kind of thing is, is relevant both in terms of understanding um, human development and very much in terms of what happens in therapeutic relationship. I don't think you can escape it. Like you can't escape philosophy by mm. just saying, you know, I banish it and there it's gone, you know. So. I mean, I suppose I would say in response to Edward Shorter, well, thankfully not. I mean, I think that, I think that psychoana- psychoanalytic theory and psychoanalytic practice, perhaps, you know, it's certainly true that not many people have access to the five times a week, but psychoanalytically informed psychotherapy is alive and well, even if our psychotherapy departments are quite sort of underfunded. And um, I think also, you know, when I was saying before, you know, what interested me about phenomenology, well, I was sort of thinking about how do we incorporate subjective experience. What interests me about psychoanalysis is, well, how do we incorporate meaning? You know, with, 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 with the current let's just say DSM or basic criteria that we have for mental illnesses, you know, how do we incorporate this idea of meaning? And that's not just sort of meaning in terms of our psychic lives, but also sort of meaning in our lives in general. I think that, you know, psychoanalysis is a metapsychology. You know, it has this sort of very interesting model of the mind, which has, you know, a lot to offer, uh, particularly this idea of the unconscious, which in the kind of models that we use within psychiatry or psychology, you know, when you say sort of philosophical mm. psychology, I was sort of, sort of trying to think um, that, that I think can be very sort of useful to us. But your point, Alistair, about how much of that is used in average practice 
is unbelievable. I mean, the idea of defence mechanisms, even the idea of unconscious repetition, the idea of transference, counter-transference. I mean, clinicians who would think of themselves as being very hostile to psychoanalysis use these concepts very usefully all the time in their practice. And there was just one other thought that I had about psychoanalysis, which is that it also addresses itself to kind of a broader sort of moral question, which is how to live a good life, um, you know, whatever that life might be for you. That it's, it's not just aiming at sort of making your symptoms less. It's, 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 sort, it's sort of thinking about your sense of agency and, and fulfillment and flourishing and, and, and development as sort of a, a human. And, you know, psychiatry is this sort of very complex humanistic <coughs> endeavour and, and I think that some of the things that I mean I know that not everything that psychoanalysis is appealing to people but I think there is a lot about psychoanalysis actually to offer psychiatry mm. Just going on from that point um, there's a um, fellow called Edward Harcourt who's a philosopher mm. at Oxford who's written quite a lot of articles about how in some ways almost um, psychoanalysis smuggled in ideas about what's the right way to live your life under the guise of something else and um, you know that that is an element in the in in the theory certainly and um, whether it's whether it's right or wrong it's 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 there I'm not sure that psychiatry can pretend that it doesn't do that as well Mm. you know it sees people who are very unhappy very disturbed seeking all sorts of things other than to sleep a bit better at night or to feel a bit less anxious like Mm. that question Mm. which is a philosophical question really um, comes up all the time in the clinic Mm. Mm. do you think of Fanon as being a psychoanalytic thinker he, um, th- there's a long debate on the relationship between Fanon and psychoanalysis. He saw himself as a psychoanalyst, and he did practice psychoanalysis, even though he had not been uh, analysed himself, but he thought he could do it anyway. Um, he, I mean, his model of mental illness is quite complex, and is, it's indebted to a, a French psychiatrist who was very close to Lacan, though they were quite different, but one that Lacan respected, called Henri A. And A's model was the idea that uh, uh, mental disturbance comes from an initial organic disturbance, which produces a dissolution of personality. Uh, That personality has its own uh, dynamism and reconstructs itself, but wrongly or falsely or inadequately. And that what we call mental illnesses are, in fact, these, the various forms of uh, wrong reconstitution of, uh, of the psyche following a disturbance. And the treatment then for A, which was one that Fanon then practiced, was to use shock therapy to destroy this fake or fakely reconstructed uh, uh, personality, and then to start psychotherapeutical processes which were several. Uh, Fanon, for instance, was very ecumenical. He tried everything. But part of it was psychoanalysis, group psychoanalysis also, psychodrama, etc. So it's a fairly complex uh, model within which uh, psychoanalysis has a place, and he found it very uh, useful. He did a lot of uh, dream analysis, in particular in the, in the colonial context, in particular in the context of a colonial war. That was quite telling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so, so psychoanalysis played a role, but in a, in a third phase, so, so to speak. ECT plus yeah, other, other types yeah. of shock yeah. therapy, yeah. also yeah. like yeah. Uh, yeah. insulin yeah. coma yeah. and so yeah. on. Yeah. Which, you know, were, were widely used yeah. in, yeah. The, in yeah. those yeah. The, years. The founders of, uh, of anti-psychiatry, I mean, the, the, probably the most significant anti-psychiatrist in Europe, in continental Europe, was François Tosquelles, who was a revolutionary uh, psychiatrist, who trained uh, uh, Uri, who then trained Guattari, and the whole history of anti-psychiatry comes from uh, Tosquelles. Well, Fanon wrote uh, three articles with Tosquelles in psychiatric journals mm-hmm. about the use of uh, shock therapy mm-hmm. and how they developed new uh, techniques. And there are some interesting texts by, uh, by uh, Fanon and Tosquelles saying uh, we have a sort of substantialist uh, Myth of uh, of what personality is, which is uh, which is a philosophical illusion, and, uh, and there's no problem with uh, dissolving a personality that has been wrongly uh, agglomerated after neurological trauma, and then rebuilding it. But for Fanon, then that became a model of uh, his political thought, also because he thought that colonization was the analogon of uh, was analogical to the to the the sort of uh, neurological trauma, the initial neurological trauma, that uh, colonial alienation, which he described in great details in, in his uh, well-known books, uh, was the equivalent of uh, the pathological reconstruction of personality, and that, that the uh, uh, anti-colonial fight was the equivalent of the shock therapy. But then the work would then start of rebuilding uh, a society and rebuilding a, a social consciousness through different methods, which were analogical to uh, psychoanalysis, to uh, psychodrama, etc. So it was a very complex model, which on the one hand implied a, uh, a reform of the asylum, because you couldn't just do it as it used to be, uh, the doctor's visit in the morning, and then people just simmering in the afternoon and becoming madder and madder. You needed to reorganize the, the hospital as a sort of uh, society where people could re-socialize themselves. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the, uh, on the other side, in the anti-colonial uh, struggle, he had very clear ideas of what was wrong in some revolutionary movements, the movements which were led by uh, uh, charismatic figures, etc., because they deprived the people from the opportunity to uh, re-socialize themselves through this process and to cure themselves of these colonial alienations. So uh, it's a very uh, psychoanalytic model in a way, uh, but within a much more complex uh, framework integrating uh, neurology uh, and psychiatry in, in a more general sense. Could I just pick up um, using the term philosophical psychology because I think there's another um, angle on that which is um, also th- thinking about um, the, um, the rise of neuroscience and its influence within psychiatry is um, the um, philosophical basis of neuroscience and there's a, um, a writer called Peter Hacker who wrote a fairly phenomenal book which I would strongly recommend although it's very long called The Philosophical Foundations of Neuroscience and really and he's not 
he's not presenting it as against neuroscience, but he's saying to neuroscientists, you need to be very careful about the way you use all these psychological terms when you don't really know what you're doing with them. Um, so just as a very crude example, people saying, um, uh, you know, uh, now the brain has decided to tell me that I'm hungry or my brain has decided, you know, that this idea that somehow we have brains inside us that tell us to do things rather than being just part of us, you know, and that, and, and that, that kind of thinking runs through an enormous amount of neuroscience. I mean, again, it's a trivial example, but one I found very amusing was uh, an article that said, um, we are now very close to finding the neural basis of humour so I kind of think, does that mean that in the future life's going to be much funnier than it was before? <laughs> Probably not. No. But, you know, it's that... Obviously, that's, you know, that's, been, that's been a bit trivial because obviously it would be very interesting to know which parts of, you know, what happens within the, within the brain when we laugh at a joke, you know. How is it? But um, it almost implies that we could bypass the joke and just have something prodded into that part of the brain and then we'll laugh anyway and then we could have a, have a sort of button to press and we could be laughing all the time. And that sort of makes the point really nicely about you know, what does philosophy have to offer psychiatry because it's about sort of interrogating our assumptions of which there are just so many that get smuggled in everywhere once, mm. once you start looking at it. One of the things that we did in our phenomenology group is that we ended up uh, getting someone to come in and teach us Heidegger. And obviously it was very, very hard for us because we don't really have a philosophy background. Um, And there was lots that we got out of it, but I think that one of the things that we really got out of it is how he just interrogates all the assumptions that there are. You know, everything that gets smuggled into, say, being a human, he has to sort of create another word for it to try and get rid of them. And, and it was kind of an exercise for us in how you sort of drill down into that alongside a sort of training in a way and you know, some sort of philosophical thinking and getting to grips with a really difficult text and, and thinking about a whole new way of thinking about the world. I think just that thinking about all the assumptions that you have, because once you start thinking about it, it's quite extraordinary. Mm. I think that might be a good moment to start taking some questions. Mm. Is there a mic upstairs as well? Yes. Okay. We'll start from down here, I think. <laughs> <clears throat> Question here. Look at the yeah, Okay. <laughs> I'm seeing all. Uh, yeah, someone yeah, here. Or lady at the back. I think I'll take two or three questions, and then we can do them. Uh, thanks. Is this on? So I had a question for the psychiatrist. I wanted to know how common it was that you saw organic diseases having an, having the effect that you described, like having a um, synchronous effect on the psyche. I didn't... Could you, could you speak a bit speak louder, a bit. please? So I wanted to know how common it is for you to see patients that have um, neurological deficits in some way and, um, yeah, how common it is for them to report other symptoms that challenge their notions of self um, in different ways? Like, is that a common thing, or is that, like, a rare thing you see? 
Okay, and we take another question. I think there was one in the middle. Um, with regard to the uh, comments made on schizophrenia mm. and the mention of uh, hallucinations and delusions and so on, um, do you think there is a, a bias towards on the question of the nature of reality, a bias towards psychiatrists to assume that the cause of those hallucinations is from within the mind, whereas maybe philosophers may be trying to question, well, is there a possibility uh, that perhaps the cause could be from uh, outside the mind? We take one more question, yeah. Thank you, and just a comment that um, we talked a lot about the Western philosophy and the connection between philosophy and psychiatry is not necessarily a Western thing. If you go a thousand years back, Avicenna was also a philosopher and a medic and he wrote a lot about psychiatry. And uh, his work is quite amazing for his time. And there's a thing that we also need to see how psychiatry can address some philosophy in terms of things like free will. If you talk to people with Tourette's disorder, people who have tech disorder, like myself, or people with OCD, how you can figure free will into that. And that's also interesting. Thanks. Thank you. Okay, take your pick. I just wonder whether the very using the words outside and inside when speaking uh, about the mind that's not already uh, uh, indicative of a problem uh, do, you, do you mean that in a way a lot of mental illnesses would be social no uh, what, what, I, what I mean is say a person claims to have seen an apparition of a dead person or whatever, uh, then will psychiatrists assume that that is a hallucination or delusion, whereas philosophers might actually consider the question, maybe due to sort of uh, religious philosophies or whatever, that, that that actually might reflect a different uh, a reality or, uh, in more sort of traditional religious uh, uh, beliefs. Ah. Well, I think actually, if we, if, we, if we just look, if you think very briefly about some of the philosophers who have actually you know, addressed the question, um, funnily enough, Kant and Freud come quite close together on this point, because I think rather than saying, is it, is it something just in the mind or is it something that comes from, from something that we call reality, the philosopher is more likely to say, uh, what's, this, what's with your distinction between hallucination and reality? How do, you, how do you make that distinction in the first place? And I think that work, Freud's work, and in particular Freud's work in the interpretation of dreams, goes very far towards uh, a very deep questioning of uh, the distinction between conscious and unconscious, the, and the, the extent to which you know, unconscious factors are at play all the time, not just when we're asleep or not just when we're exhibiting a neurotic symptom, uh, does as much as, as, as any philosophy to 
to trouble that distinction straightforwardly between, on the one hand, reality, on the other hand, mm -hmm. something else. We'll call it delusion, illusion, or whatever. Mm -hmm. can, I, can I say, it, the, the question about um, was to you, which was, do you, do you see, uh, how much do you see in your clinic people with neurological uh, damage? Um, I'd like you to answer that question, <laughs> but also because I sort of want to add to it. So, for example, somebody suffering from Parkinson's disease mm -hmm. will, will, in the later stages, likely have hallucinations, mm -hmm. but that person is unlikely to be referred to a psychiatrist for their hallucinations, or... Well, they might be. They might be. Um, depends on how they're affected by them. And, and some... T I mean, the... Uh, in some ways, you, nowadays, I think the thinking is more along the lines of something called Lewy body disease, mm. which has different manifestations. Sometimes can be a movement disorder, mm. which is classical Parkinson's disease. Sometimes can be um, a, um, a dementing process mm. and also can cause hallucinations. And so it might depend on which of those is the first... Um, the thing to present in a way is the the most people with um, dementing illness Alzheimer's disease nowadays are treated mostly by psychiatrists social workers psychiatric nurses even though it's very clear and you know it will have been established in most cases that there's evidence using you know fairly conventional brain imaging now that, that a, a disease process is affecting the brain which is likely to be progressive there are good reasons why um, um, the, the care of these people is often um, uh, given over to mental health services even with, with contribution from neurologists and, and people like that because it's about how you help somebody and, and their f spouse and their family to deal with that situation, which is a emotionally very, very difficult. And um, I suppose the point being, there's, there's never just memory loss, is there? Because memory loss is very distressing and upsetting and has... Um, so there might be other um, organic psychological deficits as well but even if there aren't how how you help somebody deal with that memory loss how you how you find solutions um, and help somebody through what may be quite a long process and that you know that that requires skills which are, are often sit with people within mental health services i think in america it's probably a bit different i think in america i, I think neurologists have a bigger role but um, yeah, that's a, so there's ne there's never just somebody who has organic mm -hmm. symptoms either because it's it's always an emotional uh, an emotional challenge. Yeah, just just to add to that, I mean, I not so much in my current job, but over my career, I've seen a lot of people with sort of organic brain disorders who end up being seen in psychiatry, particularly because depression and anxiety <coughs> become sort of very. They, they, they can be sort of big manifestations of those. But also the other way around, what I see much more commonly now is a, 
early brain changes of organic processes that come to psychiatry first, maybe four or five years before the brain pathology shows up on an MRI, so whether that's sort of early dementia or something like that. So there'll be lability of mood, you know, changes in behaviour that are just a little subtle at first and then get a bit stranger. Lots of psychological explanations, but actually it turns out that it's actually an organic problem. But nonetheless, psychiatry remains involved because you have to try and help them with those problems. Um, and just in the second question about sort of um, reality and, and schizophrenia, um, well, there were two things I thought about that. There was one about sort of the, the pathologization of, 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 of certain experiences by psychiatrists, but there was also something, I guess, about the assumption of a shared reality a sort of a shared sort of intersubjective reality. So if if I can't hear it and somebody else says they're hearing something, then that is a fundamental assumption, I think, that gets made in psychiatry that they're... And in psychiatry, it would go further, I guess, is to say that there must... There is potentially something abnormal or symptomatic going on. But of course, I have the great advantage that people come to me because they already think something's going wrong and they're troubled by it. So psychiatrists don't see many people, really, who aren't troubled by their symptoms, unless, of course, their relatives are very troubled and bring them in or they're being problematic to the police or something like that. But it's interesting because if I said, I'm feeling something, and you said, well, I'm not feeling it, therefore, you you know, you must be imagining that you're feeling it. We would never say that about a whole array of feelings and that could be a really broad category feelings couldn't it Um, but but as soon as we as soon as we connect it to certain presumptions about causal relationships between external objects and And representations yeah yes it's very interesting well, there, there are cases also where the conceptualization of mental illness is a form of mental illness or plays a role in mental illness Uh, like I'm thinking again on Fanon. Fanon wrote a number of uh, essays on the locals' conceptualization of their own mental illnesses in the form of genes, genies, genies that would take over. Uh, So it's not only that the families would consider that the uh, individuals who hallucinated uh, were the objects of the powers of uh, genes, but that also the the individuals, in a way, were reassured to know that that was the case, etc. And uh, and for Fanon, that was a fairly useful tool for uh, the clinic because it prevented the the clinical staff, the family, etc., to have a judgmental or moral attitude towards the... uh, the patients. They were taken over by forces that were not mm. themselves. Mm. Uh, they thought themselves that they were not taken, that they were taken over by those uh, forces. Um, and in a way, uh, they didn't feel guilty and that didn't uh, add to their own uh, illness. So they experienced their own Ill- their illness, which could be uh, neurologically determined, in a very different way than they would have uh, had they lived in a different culture and hadn't had, if they hadn't had the tools to conceptualize their mental illness uh, in that way. So it's a fairly complex uh, ensemble. Um, the, the image that you have of the causes of your own illness. Yeah, it's interesting. There were, there were studies done, weren't there, into um, 
it, it was looking at sort of trying to destigmatize again sort of schizophrenia and, and thinking that this idea of moving it away from sort of more cultural ideas of sort of spirits or possession into the idea that it was a brain disorder of, of, of some sort would be helpful in um, humanizing uh, the, the, uh, the, the, the sufferer in some sort of way. But actually, when they, when they looked into it, they found that this idea that it was some kind of abnormal brain pathology actually made people seem more frightening, more alien, and more unpredictable. It, it, had, it had the opposite effect, which was very interesting. Um, pick up the point about free will, because, mm. I mean, that in a way, well, that's a whole area of philosophical... <laughs> Uh, debate, isn't it? I mean, does anybody have free will? Some There are people who argue that we don't. I mean, I, I tend to think we probably do, we have free will, but not as much as we probably think most of the time. But, um, um, but, you know, certainly there are some there are some situations, and I suppose perhaps most commonly um, because it is a relatively common condition, when people are suffering from, from clinical depression, it's not necessarily the loss of willpower completely, but it's you know willpower is bringing everything difficult, and it, you know people often describe it in terms of moving through treacle. You know everything is everything's everything's an effort, and um, so often there, there's a there's an idea that I would like to go. I'll go out for a walk, but then I don't go out for a walk because it, it's too difficult. So I think in a lot of a lot of forms of mental uh, disorder, there is an issue about the ability to to make things happen, to um, to exercise free will. But um, I think that is also a, a that's an area of philosophical argument all all on its own. Isn't it? I, yeah, well, it was, it's interesting because obviously we're here to discuss what does philosophy offer to psychiatry. But, you know, that example of OCD is very interesting. And, and you might think, well, what does psychiatry offer philosophy? Um, because, you know, you could see how you could characterise it as a disorder of free will. You know, there's an intrusive thought and there's this desire to do a compulsion that just cannot be resisted. Um, and the thought doesn't feel like it, it's their own thought, but it doesn't feel in line with what they want to do. But yet, they, in the end, they have to do it and give in. And... Um, there's so many interesting questions around free will and agency that, that it opens up. So, very interesting point. Let's take some questions from upstairs, I think. In the front row. Hi. Um, this is kind of like a short two-part question, which is um, the beginning discussed the origins of continental philosophy in the advent of both of these disciplines, do you think that therefore uh, cultural reading is potentially going to infuse these subjects deeper by adding a word like anthropology and learning from places that we wouldn't consider the same symptoms to be treated or culturally read the same in different contexts? And secondly, the split that we were talking about between mind and body if we go along with the idea that trauma is often pre- or post-verbal, as an example, is this, in a therapeutic application, redundant because we're trying to think our way into the body? Is body work more of an... Maybe it's redundant to comment on it, but if you could comment <laughs> on it, that would be cool. Thank you. There's a question at the back. 
Um, thank you for your thoughts. Um, you mentioned the idea of every generation has a way of driving itself mad. I wonder, given the context of social media and increased discussion um, of um, mental disorder and mental health, if that has any effect on this generation and sort of diagnoses and, um, yeah, what is, what is the way this generation is driving itself mad? Thank you. And one more. I'm going for the extremes. Sorry. <laughs> Back away, please. Uh, hello. Uh, I've been doing a lot of reading into more Eastern philosophy and like stuff like Buddhism and things like that. And so could I get your opinions and possibly criticism on like the whole Buddhist philosophy, in particular the whole no-self-doctrine, that there is no sort of self in charge of the body, no. Yeah, nothing like that. Okay. Thank, Thank you. you. Okay, so lots of different things to grapple with there. I'd just say something very quickly about, if I understand your point correctly, that we need to think about other disciplines in, in this mixture as well. Um, when Kant wrote his essay on the maladies of the head, people actually classify that as part of his anthropological work. And, that, and he wrote that just at the moment that the very discipline of anthropology was emerging in Germany. Anthropologists had a, had a big part to play in early psychiatry. I think, I mean, the point I was trying to make really at the beginning was we find ourselves in a situation now where our thinking about the relationship between the disciplines is determined by the way they appear to us in university departments and by the demands of institutional demands like the research assessment exercise which you know splits up the disciplines this is a very false view of the way that intellectual culture develops it it it, it there's a certain uh, it helps in a way to split our knowledge up into disciplines and you need medical specialization for sure but actually the whole history of uh, intellectual culture everywhere is a culture is a history in which we see these disciplinary boundaries being violated and uh, all the time. Sometimes wrongly, like uh, <laughs> colonial anthropology played a major role in, uh, in the history of psychiatry until the 30s. And it basically aimed to show that there were uh, constitu constitutional uh, differences between different races mm. from a psychiatric point of, point of view. And uh, a lot of uh, psychiatric hospitals were segregated uh, until the 50s, mm. both in uh, French-speaking and in English-speaking colonial countries, uh, while uh, uh, general hospitals were not. Mm. The idea was that there were some mental differences, some mm. structural mental differences mm. between uh, different races. So the interaction between uh, the disciplines can also have a, a negative side. And in, in many ways, modern anthropology was a reaction against this sort of uh, ethnological uh, constitutionalized, uh, cons constitutionalization uh, of mental illness, saying that it was proper to, to a particular ethnic constitution. Yeah. 
And yeah, and just, just, just to add, like just going back to sort of Carl Jaspers, you know, he sort of saw the contribution of the humanities and the sciences as sort of coming equally in thinking about sort of psychic events and, and, and mental life, that you had un- this method of understanding that came from the humanities and explaining um, that, that came from the sciences, but you had to have both, actually, to, to understand the mental. Um, just a reminder of the other questions. There was a question about social media. There was a question about Buddhism. And there was a question about trauma and body work as a kind of alternative therapeutic approach. Can I perhaps try and put together the... I mean, and I'm not trying to... I'm not claiming to know very much about Buddhism. And, but the, the issue about social media and then the... Perhaps as a, as a um, related thing... Um, the ability to um, to meditate, to contemplate, to um, take a step back from immediate concerns, from um, the hyper um, creation of self, which to some extent is is one of the aspects of social media, isn't it? Is is creating this. Um, uh, for, for so many of us, a, a hyper real sense of ourselves as 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 people, which is just incredibly fragile, and people go from being major, and this is only a small number of people really, but major social media influences one minute to being, you know, their whole lives falling apart because of a loss of followers and you know this kind of thing. So I, I don't, I kind of feel that I'm not the right generation to be able to say, number one, you know, what are the effects of social media exactly and what is the best thing to do about them? But I, I do think part of, the, part of the answer is some sort of balance that involves an ability to step away from that, um, that world sometimes. And I think that's, it may well be that it's my generation that's got the problem, you know, and, and that, that people of a younger generation have learned how to, how to tackle these things, I don't know. I mean, just picking that point up, um, with the quote, actually the, the quote is that um, every generation has fixed rules on how to be mad. So it's not sort of so much about driving itself mad, and perhaps you might think for current times perhaps something like cutting oneself or self-harming might be part of that that's sort of you know historically quite a new thing yes it happened before but but in the in the sort of distress signature that it is right now I think that's sort of quite a modern phenomena and the question about social media I think is a very interesting one and I think it leads back to this question about science and about the idea of the the individual but just the individual sort of sort of not thinking about the group or the society that they're in and that the individual needs to be treated i was sort of looking at the the papers over the weekend about this sort of increase in teenage suicides that sort of seems to be linked to the social media culture and and, and demands and that this idea that different approaches need to be thought about and used and, and that maybe something that might be more a kind of public health approach, thinking about a problem like that, is much more helpful than a sort of psychiatric individualistic approach. Um, I think that's probably what I have to say about that. Okay, I think we've got time for a couple more questions. Yeah, one at the back. 
Yeah. Facebook is fascination for the face. Um, so I was thinking, um, in the context of artificial intelligence, I can't quite hear you. In the context of artificial intelligence and developments in that area, um, the, the idea of, for example, someday maybe computers or machines having um, mental disorders and problems, um, how would that pose a challenge to those philosophical foundations of <laughs> psychology and, um, and psychiatry, given that originally um, philosophy dealt with humans, of course, not, not machines or computers. Did you hear that? I think the, I think the question, which is very difficult here, but I think the question was, yeah, with, given, given the current state of what people call artificial intelligence mm -hmm. and the idea that, um, that machines might have mental disturbances, or, or does that make any sense to you, the... The idea that, that there it's might be... It's a new by uh, Kubrick in 2001, <laughs> A Space Odyssey. Let me... So uh, artificial stupidity would be more dangerous <laughs> than, than natural intelligence. It's, it's, I assume that a lot of the conceptualization that have been produced of mental illness was to characterize mental illness as a form of mechanical operation of the brain. So in a way, a machine by nature would, ha would be in a pathological state when compared to, uh, to uh, the normal function, normal, the functioning of a, mm. of a human consciousness. Mm -hmm. But uh, the, so the question would be, can a machine really reach consciousness really, mm -hmm. and therefore act in a non-pathological way? And can a machine be an, experience, an experiencing being that's not just a kind of algorithm malfunction that can think about its past experience or meaning um, and have a mental disorder, a disorder of the mind, rather than, I guess, the brain, which would be kind of the underlying algorithm in, in a meaningful way? I, I'm not sure that I can see how that's possible. Though I know lots of people doubt me because they think that AI has got incredible potential. One more question. There's another one in the back row. No, back row. <laughs> uh, thank you. Um, I just want to ask, uh, can you re ever really understand mental health if you've not been through it yourself? Or mental illness. That's exactly what means, mental illness. Great mental illness. That's a good question. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think, You've stopped them. I, well, I would say um, it's, a, um, it's a learning process. I think all of us have emotional challenges at some time in our lives, sometimes more severe, sometimes less severe. Sometimes it may be of the degree that could be called mental illness or not. And, and loads of people who work in psychiatry and you know, doctors, nurses have had episodes of mental illness it's quite common it's probably not discussed enough but I mean it, it, that's um, but I think there is also something about part of the task of, of doing this work is learning about other people who are quite different from I have to learn about trying to understand people who are quite different from me in all sorts of respects and I might do that job better or worse 
I suspect over time I learned to do it a, a little bit better. But that is a challenge. That's you know that. But I think the I think the the problem is if we say the only person who can help me with my problem is somebody who's exactly like me. Well, that, you're never going to find them, are you? Because we're all different. So, you know, it, and that's a. I wouldn't say necessarily that everybody who works in the field is um, necessarily always the best person for every person they to treat every person they see. And some people are better at working with other people. Maybe people not not like them, but they just have a. Some young people are very good at working with elderly people. Some older professionals are quite good with young people, you know. So that there has to be some humility about knowing your limits and knowing your. Um, yeah, I, I, I would, I would, I would agree with that. I mean, there's a question about what it takes to understand another person. You know, do you, do you, do you have had to have? I can imagine people having had similar experiences, but actually perhaps not being able to listen or, or, or make some kind of connection in the right sort of way, or indeed those experiences facilitating them to really properly understand what it is like to be that person in the world. But it made me think, actually, when you asked that question, of um, actually very the, the, the complete polar opposite to being a psychiatrist, being a neurosurgeon. And Henry Marsh's book, um, I think it's called Do No Harm, and he's talking about... Um, when his young son um, has to have neurosurgery himself and what it's like to be a patient. And it is such an extraordinary experience for him as the consultant surgeon to be a patient. It's such a, a, an extraordinary lesson in what it's like, the power dynamics, the humility. And he says, when it comes to doctors, they can't suffer enough. Um, <laughs> um, on that note, um, we are out of time. Thank you very much for coming. Do join me in thanking our speakers.